Hi there, and welcome to Putting the Squid to Bed, a podcast about creative people and their craft. My name is Tim Lenko. I'm a writer and performer, and on this podcast, I interview creative people about why they create things and how they go about it. The show is named after an image that I have found so helpful. If you're anything like me, you know those moments when you've nearly finished a project, but then you find another touch you could add, another loose end to tie off, or another rough patch that needs ironing out. It's like trying to tuck a squid into bed. Just when you get two or three arms under the covers, another four or five have popped back out. Projects are rarely finished so much as they are surrendered. And that journey of discovery, creation, and surrender is what I ask my guests about. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Putting the Squid to Bed. In case we haven't met, hi, my name is Tim. Um, and my guest today, I'm very excited about. My associate priest handed me his, uh, his, one of his books a few months ago, and I was bowled over by how charming and light and then also weighty and wise it was. So I'm incredibly thrilled to be speaking with him uh, today. Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling illustrator and author of many children's books, including Shooting at the Stars, Drawing is Magic, Miracle Man, The Story of Jesus, The Faithful Spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and The Plot to Kill Hitler, uh, and more. Uh, his art is also published in a bunch of other authors' works, like the Ronan Boyle series by Thomas Lennon. He lives in St. Louis, Missouri, where he is still drawing and writing, and teaches illustration as a professor of art and uh, at the Sam Fox School of Art and Design at Washington University. Um, I forgot to mention the the book that I was handed by my priest Jesse, Father Jesse, was "The Holy Ghost: A Spirited Comic." Um, I'm excited to talk to, about, to him about that and more. Please welcome into your ears, John Hendricks. John, Hi. welcome here. Oh, that was a great introduction. Thank you. Glad to, glad to chat. Yeah, I, most people do not say they found my book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer trying to kill Hitler charming and humorous. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you clarified that that was the Holy Ghost comics. But, yeah, the range of my work sometimes uh, it kind of astonishes myself. But, yes, thank you. Oh, that's fun. Are are you uh, in your practice discovering anything that's surprising you recently b- beyond your range? I, you know what it is? It's my own um, sense of boredom. I have a pendulum in my in my head that when I make a book that is one thing, then the next project I want to do is on the other side of the spectrum. So okay. I'm working on a graphic novel right now called The Myth Makers about the friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And... <sighs> After, I've been working on that for like four years, and then the project I have after that is a follow-up to Drawing is Magic, which is like a fun workbook, drawing book, sketchbook thing. So I, I just wildly vary, uh, probably just because from my own uh, boredom in my, in my process. <laughs> well, and in the variety, you must find that kind of enriching. Yeah, I, I think it, it is just the way that my artistic practice has allowed me to sustain interest, is to, to try different things and... Um, I remember very early on in my career, I mentioned the fancy Nancy books to my wife because my daughter oh. was very into them. Yeah. And I said, can you imagine the horror of having this kind of success? And like the thinking of the illustrator who was going to have to illustrate fancy Nancy books for like the rest of their life. And <laughs> I saw this as an absolute horror. And my wife was like, what do you mean? That is the dream. You are as successful as you'll ever be. These books 
you know, they just they print millions on arrival. And that I, it was just so funny that that did not even occur to me as something that would be desirable. So I, okay. I don't think my priorities are uh, necessarily in the right spot. Well, as I listen to that, I, I get the feeling that like you're in good company. It, it makes me think of Nora Jones, who can't stand to work on an album more than nine months. And she's got to finish it. Otherwise, she'll get bored with it and quit. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, this graphic novel right now is a, has been a five-year uh, project, and man, that's that's well beyond what is like I, I'm able to endure. Um, my picture books take about a year, um, yeah. maybe eighteen months, and you know the Dietrich Bonhoeffer book took um, four years. I, so, like, I'm I'm re- this is the longest book I've ever made. It's the most involved. Mm-hmm. It's the most ambitious, and man, I am I am ready for it to be out the door. But of course, as soon as that happens, then I will be sad because yeah. the the thing I've been loving for five years will be gone, and I will you know miss it immediately. But so this is the problem yeah. of being an art. Totally, that makes a lot of sense. Well, enjoy it, savor it as much as you can while you're doing as much it. as I can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, John, I'm interested. What uh, first got you set on this whole path? What what triggered this love for drawing and storytelling? Well, I have always been drawing. I don't remember a time before drawing. Yeah. Uh, I also tell people I don't remember a time before Jesus. And I don't, mm. those two things are going to collide later in my life. And I, I actually did not even plan to be a person who illustrated stories of faith. I, in fact, yeah. I thought I was very angry at the idea that if you were a Christian and wanted to be an artist, that you had to do that. So to me, it's very ironic that that's where my practice ended up. But I have always been drawing. I I didn't know I was an illustrator until college, believe it or not, because Hmm. I I, I wanted to make comics. Um, I loved making stories, and drawing was just a way of thinking for me. And I I didn't know that when I was younger. It's just that's how I processed the world was through Hmm. images. Um, And then eventually I had a wonderful illustration teacher, who, I mean, it's embarrassing to think even in college, like as I'm coming to college, I did not realize that illustration was a career path. I kind of thought those people that made picture books, those people that worked on stories like that were, I, I don't know what I thought, that they were more yeah. hobbies, that they were not really a particular discipline. So I found the discipline of illustration and was immediately like, oh, the, this is my world. This is what I was meant to do. Uh, and really ever since, since then I've had a very clear, um, kind of vocational calling. I love that. Yeah. I've heard from so many people that they said in, in their journey, they had to get over the fact that they didn't find their art to be a serious thing, a real thing, a substantial thing that was worth giving their life to. And so mm-hmm. what was it in that season that tipped you over the edge that brought you over to see and and decide yeah this could be a substantial thing yeah i i i thought you weren't allowed to really have a real job that was making art um in fact when i was in seventh grade my parents were always very supportive i mean like weirdly supportive of of me making art (laughs) they had me do an internship at an architecture firm because in their mind, they're like, oh, that's about as close as you can get. I mean, they were not particularly familiar with the creative world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, of course, I went there thinking, oh, this is what artists do. They work in this kind of environment. And immediately I was like, I hate this. I hate everything. about. I don't know what this is, but this is not what I had imagined. So mm-hmm. I met a professor again in undergrad that 
was, and I think this is the thing about teaching I like, is that it you can give young people like a credible example of what it means to do this for a living yeah. or what it means to have this as a calling. And so I, I just saw in this professor, oh, this is what this life looks like. This is what the, the work is. This is the practice. And um, that was very, you know, intoxicating to me. So in my in my practice day, I don't think of myself as imparting um, wisdom to students when I'm teaching. That's really not what it is. It's more about, hey, here's how the life of a creative illustrator can look, can feel. Um, it's very normal. It's very possible, and um, mm-hmm. it's it's a very good way to dedicate you know y- your career, your life, your work to this to this outcome. Oh, that's very cool. It's kind of. Um you know, it's, it's giving discipleship. It's giving, look and see how I live. Don't yes, maybe right. emulate all of it, but like, here's a model now follow in my footsteps insofar as it's good and wise. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the thing that doesn't get said enough in art school is that you are, it is a sacrifice to be an artist. It is not actually, I mean, the, the world liturgy of art making is that it's inherently selfish and kind of navel gazing and kind of, yeah. about the artist, um, centering the artist as an important thing that needs to be shared with the world. And in fact, I think art making is extremely others focused. It's about communication. Mm-hmm. It's about fellowship. But primarily, it is you are sacrificing to be an artist because you are not going to business school. You are not pursuing a career where the end result is money. There are not career fairs for illustrators. And so when I meet students, I tell them, listen, this, if this is your calling, you, you have to lay some things down to do this. Um, and the things you're going to get back are going to be really good um, if you can keep the faith, if you can be persistent and patient. But this this is not a ticket to a certain kind of life that, that maybe you think you deserve or mm-hmm. that maybe your parents had or that, that maybe – our materialism in our world feels like, well, I should be able to do everything. Um, and, and oftentimes with the arts, you, if you want to make the work you want to make, um, you're going to have to sacrifice some part of your, of your vision there. Yeah. When a student asks you, or if a student asks you, okay, what is the thing that you actually get back? What is that return? What Mm -hmm. do you point to for them? Oh, it's the, it's the age old trade off of, um, you know, you're going to have the ability to have freedom in your life. You know, you're going to have the ability to determine the stuff that is important to you to set your own schedule, um, to build your life as a, as a free agent in a lot of ways. Um, that, you know, that doesn't mean you're never going to work a nine to five job. Uh, cause a lot of artists thrive inside of a nine to five kind of structure, like at, at animation studios in advertising agencies, there's lots of ways you can be a creative person, but in the, in the realm of an illustrator or a graphic novelist, um, you're going to have a lot of time to yourself and you're going to need a lot of self-discipline. But the thing you get back is that freedom to be able to say exactly what you want to say in the form of your work. And then at the end of the day, you get to put your name on something and it goes out into the world. And that little object or that little movie or that little film has the power to connect to people you've never met before. And in fact, 90 percent of those connections you'll never actually experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that it's also kind of a sacrificial act in a way. Um, But as opposed to like if you were a Broadway performer 
and every night you experience the connection viscerally through that human connection in a room, right? And artists who make books, it's a little different, right? It's a lot of alone time. You're you're alone drawing all the time, it feels like. And then these books go out and you kind of are waiting for like the applause as if you you just performed on stage and there's, you know, there's nothing there. (laughs) So it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange calling, but there is so much that you get back. Um, if, if you have things you feel like you really want to say. Cool. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so you mentioned, uh, that in that alone time, in that freedom that you then have to have, you know, apply some discipline to, um, and the, the life uh, that you were d- showing to your students, like this is what a life of uh, an illustrator could be. What does yours look like? How do you <laughs> create space uh, and protect that space uh, to be creative, to generate uh, material? So there's, a, a, again, a lot of ways to build a creative life. Um, and for me, the kinds of work I wanted to make allowed me to, to need, well, I, what I needed was a lot of time to work on it. Um, yeah. I did editorial illustration early in my career, mm. which is like, uh, it, it's fun. It's like an extreme sport of drawing. Like, you know, the New York Times calls you with a piece. It's for the op-ed page that prints every day. Uh, you have a, a couple hours for the sketch. They approve a sketch of the three or four you send. And then you have a couple hours to do the finished art. And then it's in the newspaper the next day. And then it's gone. And it's like, it's really fun and, and it's a rush and it's so exciting to be commissioned to make drawings for important subject matter, yeah. for important authors writing it um, anyway. But there is a kind of ephemeral nature to the illustration that I also really love. But as you, as I got older in my career, I longed to make things that lasted a little longer, that, that had a little more staying power yeah. and lived in a library for a few years instead of um, just a day. And so that, for that, I, I needed um, more time. And that's one thing that I love about teaching. And I think, unfortunately, teaching over the years, this is one of those cultural liturgies also, like elf, artists are just selfish, is that teachers are failed practitioners in some way. Right. And in fact, I think teaching is one of the best ways to improve your practice. One, mm-hmm. I, I get to go and be around young people who are really interested in this stuff. I get to talk about illustration all the time, think about what it means to make it, help people make their own voice clearer. Uh, and then the benefits of teaching at, a, at an R1 university is that the university wants me to make my work and gives me time to do that. So, you know, it's, it feels like I'm investing in an institution, in students, and then though that institution is investing in me and my work. And that, and that trade-off to me is, is really worth it. Of course, I have to go to committee meetings. I have to do things maybe I don't <laughs> yeah, want, but, you know, we all do if we're, if we're working a job in some form. But to me, it's a, teaching is, a, is just a wonderful way to have an artistic life. I love that because yeah, it's supporting um, everything that you want to do. It's creating space for that. It's it's creating some foundation to to mm-hmm. um, be able to protect that space. That's right. Um, so zooming in day to day, week by week, how, what does your timeline look like for artistic uh, digging into your actual creation? I, I'm definitely a late night person. I yeah. always have been a man when the, the children are in bed and, you know, it's quiet. You get a cup. I, I mean, I, I like drinking coffee late at night and the, there's something about the peace of that, that time. It's gotten harder and harder the, the older you get to, to designate that 
that deep uh, middle of the night time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I teach a couple days a week. I have some evening um, you know, office hours where I meet with students individually. And then, you know, scattered around those meetings. One of the great things about illustration as a practice is it's very portable. So yeah, I have a sketchbook. I have... Uh, a, f- a few <laughs> leaves of paper and some some pens, and I can sit just about anywhere and and draw and work on either a project or my own uh, my own work very easily. So it it comes yeah. with me in my life a lot of places. Yeah. So some people find it incredibly challenging to um, get into a, a zone of focus and and generating when they're surrounded by distractions or anything like that it sounds like you've got a pretty flexible mind. Like you don't mind being just anywhere. Well, I want a deadline is a great motivator. So illustrators oh, have deadlines the are magic. <laughs> we have such a power over, you know, a, a traditional gallery or fine artist where they're just ha- have an open-ended creativity uh, window and maybe they have an upcoming show. It's six months away and they need to make a body of work to fit that show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is a kind of deadline, um, but illustrators work under much tighter windows. And so yes. that's the best motivator for me is panic and uh, fear of, of um, disappointing others. So I use my own people pleasing um, <laughs> tendency to to help my career. Uh, it, it hurts me in other ways, but it yeah. does help me in the, the deadline department. Oh, good for you. Excellent. Yeah. Redeeming everything that you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying. That's excellent. Um, I'm interested in what kind of like process of iteration and reiteration or like breaking things down and to build them back up, what that looks like. How often, uh, what does that process look like in terms of like first spitting out raw uh, material and then digging into it to, to give it a well, new life or yes. to... Yeah, how does that look for you? Here is the problem. Everyone yeah. seems to imagine that if you have a good idea or if you are good at your craft, that you'll be able to create something basically without friction. That that there is that is proof that you have a good idea, that it right. just flows, that it just works. And for whatever reason, good art resists being made. I don't know why this is. <laughs> so you have to normalize the idea of struggle. And that encountering friction does not actually mean anything about Uh whether your idea is good or not. You will not know if it's good or not until you push through some struggle, some, I I mean, I with my students, I call it the pit of despair, that it immediately, as soon as you start a product, like the idea is so perfect in your mind, it's this beautiful butterfly that you're like Mm -hmm. trying to catch. As the moment you try to catch it, you immediately tumble off the edge of the cliff into this terrible pit. And in, and I have I have not found a way around it. I think it is inevitable, no matter what project, no matter how good you are at making, you have to push through the struggle because the, the good art is only found on the other side of it. And that, mm-hmm. that pit, that feeling of like, I made a mistake, I didn't do this right, this was flawed from the beginning, that, that feeling is actually required, I think, to make good art. And that's usually the place where people end up giving up or turning around or trying a different idea. So cultivating that perseverance to push through that, to to believe that there can be something good on the other side, and, and critically, that the thing you make is never going to be as good as the thing you imagined you were going to make. 
And man, that is hard to believe. But it, it is mm-hmm. as universal an experience in art making um, as I can express. Yeah, it's, and it's so relatable. Um, I'm a writer and I've got a few projects that are in process and there, there's certainly struggle in getting them, trying to get them closer to what I've imagined. And it, but your comments make me think so much of a novel that I've been chewing on just in my mind for about three years. And the two times I've tried to put words down, you're right, instant mm-hmm. despair. Because my yeah. skill and craftsmanship can't match my taste and my vision for what I want that thing to be. That's right. So I, what do you think about the... Um, the notion of some projects being beyond a person's skill set at the present. Like, is it, is it possible that you have set the, an ambitious goal that's beyond your abilities? R- right. And, and need yeah. to do other smaller, more reachable things first, um, or dive into the big thing and, and, and grow with it. Um, it's an impossible yeah, question, I, but- I think that there is, there, it is, uh, honestly, it's going to waste your own anxiety and sense of confidence in yourself to, uh, to try to decide if the project you're doing is too ambitious or not. You, you will never know. There's yeah. no criteria you could create that will give you an answer one way or another with any satisfaction. Yeah. So I think you jump in because the way that you learn how to do what you're doing is to do it. So, yes, if you are a um, 19-year-old and you have set out to write the great American novel, I, you're probably not going to do that. But, I, but who, first of all, maybe you are going to do it. Right. And if you will ever write the great American novel, you're going to have to start somewhere. So you might as well start now and put in the really hard work of figuring out what it means to write a sentence and to find that that voice. And there's there's no way you can't think yourself into that. You can only write or draw your way into that. So, yeah. yes, I would say just start and uh, you know, ambitions be damned. Right. Yeah, cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. So you seem like an idea machine with how much <laughs> stuff comes out of you. That's a yeah, that can be a problem by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to, to that point, to one of those problems, how do you, how have you gone about choosing, this is the idea that I'm going to dive into? How did you choose um, the myth makers as the one to be working on for the last four or five years? Oh, man, I, this is the whole, this is the whole story to me. Like, I've never understood people who are, well, I, I think people imagine that all you need is a good idea. That, that that's it. If you can get the good idea, you're the you're a millionaire. But well, it's really not a, the good. Every lots of people have good ideas. When I oh, be, yeah. meet with people who are like, "Hey, I've written this picture book. Will you illustrate it?" and they're like, you know, just a stay at home mom, they're often very good. Yeah. So the thing that separates people from uh, who have ideas from people who have books or whatever are just the people who do them. Mm-hmm. So the execution is always the hard part. And for me, picking the idea I want to spend five years on, yeah. that is the hardest thing. Yeah. So the only way you can figure that out is, and people think it's a matter of mental assent or just deciding what you should do, or, well, I need to ask others what I should do. The only way you can figure it out is to actually test the idea 
and iterate. Like this is yeah. the power of iteration. You've got to make small versions of the thing to see if it works, to see if it enlivens your heart. If you're going to spend five mm-hmm. years on it, you better be able to like, when you dig that first hole in the ground, you better be like, oh, this is the spot. I want to keep digging here. Yeah. Because uh, to extend the terrible metaphor, if you put that first shovel in and it doesn't go in and it's like the dry and it feels terrible, you got to go somewhere else. But there's no way to know until you really start the process of digging. So with my work, I, I, you know, I have little ideas and then I try things around the idea and, and make little tests and see if, if there's something there, you know, and usually that's in the form of drawing, writing a little bit, drawing some more back and forth. Yeah. That sounds to me a lot like what you did with uh, the Holy Ghost, because uh, you just started doodling in church, right? And then started sharing a little bit. That's right. I, I draw in church all the time. And in that particular case, I uh, it was a sermon about the Holy Spirit and how ephemeral and strange it is as a concept. And I was trying to come up with a visual form, and it just struck me how there's really very few pieces of visual matter we can rely on for, for a depiction of the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course the old, the old timey phrase that we still have in the doxology, the Holy ghost, I, I made him a literal blue ghost that was sort of floating above the, the church. And it just made me laugh. I just, I loved it. I loved it. It, it was so, it immediately, like as soon as I made one little comic with him, it was like, it was this little fountain that mm. bubbled up with all these other ideas. And so I was like, oh, this is, uh, just, you know, this is a spot I need to keep digging. Yeah. So eventually that became a practice that I did just purely for myself. I, I would share them occasionally on, I made a Tumblr mm-hmm. and would share these little sketchbook comics. Um, and after 10 years, I had enough of them that it was like, well, this would be a fun little collection and put them together and then added about 20 more redid some of them to make it a little more presentable and then then i had a little little collection there but yeah that that came purely out of this is very fertile ground that that i want to continue trying to explore that's yeah that makes a lot of sense and so what did that um point of beginning look like for myth makers yeah well of course lewis and tolkien to me were like the they were the door that I passed through as a young person to be like in the world of fantasy storytelling, um, interweaving that with the story of Christian faith, like the, mm-hmm. the fact that you could do all those things together. The illustrations that surrounded the Tolkien universe uh, were very it's important to me stuff. as a young person. Yeah, the Hildenbrand uh, stuff, the, the early... Um, David Wetzel, uh, graphic novel. There were, there were so many that were important to me. So those, the, the sort of need to want to pay homage to that yeah. important segment of my life yeah. led me to read some books about them. And the, I just felt like their story is one of those that they actually accidentally reinvented literature in the middle of the 20th century like the idea that we would make fantasy books for young people, yeah. like all of d and I, I mean, my theory is that Tolkien himself single-handedly invented fan culture, um, and he didn't mean to, you know, and Lewis didn't mean to. They were in their late 40s, and they were tweedy professors that, that did not intend to write 
two of the best-selling fantasy series of all time. And mm-hmm. I just think that is an incredible story. And they were best friends. And throughout their life, they had a falling out. All A lot centered around their conflicts about what storytelling was, but also connected to their deep faith traditions. It's like, it's such an interesting story. And I feel like nobody knows about it. Or they know the, they know the, like, the, the broad shape of it. They're like, oh, they, they hung out at the Eagle and Child and they were friends or whatever. And, but, man, it's just so much more interesting than that. So that's where that came from. And almost immediately, as I started playing around with uh, in this book, using an actual lion and an actual wizard as these sort of avatars that get to do some of the things in a book that I've always wanted to draw, like do a dungeon crawl and ride a dragon. When I got to that, I was like, it was like the Holy Ghost feelings. Like, I could do this for 300 pages, and in fact, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's cool. That's yeah. very fun. And that's, uh, as, as, if nothing changes, that's coming out next year. Myth, myth, that's right. Myth. Fall 24 is the uh, pub date, so it should be pre-orders probably about January. Okay, that's exciting. Well, when that uh, when the pre-orders are open, I'll make sure to share the link. Yeah, I'll come back on when the book is out, and we can uh, we can talk about it. More. I would love that. I would love that, Matt John. Thanks for sharing some of your morning with me. I appreciate this a lot, and yeah. really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Anytime. I'll be back. Excellent. Before I let you go, I have one last question. Is there any practice or piece of content that you're digesting that's really nourishing and feeding your creative soul these days? Well, okay, let me, uh, maybe I'll pick one of each. Um, My practice recommendation is, and this is in Drawing is Magic, and it's the one that gets everyone angry, is I tell people to draw in pen when they're using a sketchbook. Um, Don't, don't use a, a pencil. Not because pencils are bad. Uh, it's just most people, when they're drawing with a pencil, they're actually thinking about the eraser more than they're thinking about the graphite. Yeah. So the pen requires you to just put a mark on the page and let it be there, good, bad, or ugly. And so yep. I think that practice that that ideas really come more from actions than they, than they come from thinking, um, that's what the pen encourages. It encourages taking an act right or wrong and that's always better than waiting planning deciding worrying which is often what happens when we start drawing with pencil for for whatever reason yeah um if i could interject try that it's that sounds so much like writing with a typewriter versus a word processor yeah yeah, you're actually just like same idea the idea that you're just you're you're pushing forward there's no going back right you just because on the other side are better ideas. Yeah. Um, but people get so worked into the idea of like, I have to make a great looking drawing. Like I'm, I'm drafting something as opposed to thinking with pictures. Yeah. Love that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just read, um, this amazing graphic novel, um, called this was our pact. And it's, a it's a wonderful story about kids kind of has like a, it feels like never ending story goonies like it's oh, yeah. kids on a bike kids kids on a bike going for a ride and they kind of pass through this veil into a magical world and uh, it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful adventure so go oh, look that up cool. well thanks for that recommendation i appreciate that and thank you all for listening. Uh, if you like this conversation, please share it with someone who might enjoy it as well. And leave us a rating wherever you're listening. It does help people like you stumble on something new. 
You can find me on Instagram at Timothy Lenko and at Timothy Lenko Music. Uh, John, where can people find you and follow your work? Well, I am on Threads and Instagram at John Hendricks and the X, spelled with an X like like Jimmy, uh, and then JohnHendricks.com. Perfect, and we'll put all those in the show notes too. All right, thanks again for listening. Join me again in two weeks when I talk with another artist about their craft. Until then, take care. Bye.